All right, uh, let's turn together tonight in our Bibles to John chapter 11. Um, if you've been with us uh, any at all on Sunday nights for the last uh, quite a few weeks, we've been studying through the book of Lamentations, and we finished, we completed that uh, very difficult study this past Sunday night. Um, I hope and pray, as some of you have said that it was, but that it was as edifying, even in its difficulty for you, as it was for me. Um, Before we move into our next book study, uh, I want to revisit a a sort of a temporary study that we had done, a topical study that that we had begun uh, some weeks ago and gone through on Sunday mornings before we began the book of Hebrews. And it's a study... Uh, in Christology, the, the study of Jesus, his person and his work. And so it fit in well with what we've been doing in Hebrews and studying about Christ and who he is and what he's done. Um, and it was a study through the I am statements of John's gospel, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life and I am the light of the world. And I am, as we'll see tonight, the resurrection and the life. And so we, we worked our way through the first four of those statements in John 6, eight and two in chapter 10. And so we're going to be at the fifth of those statements, which comes to us in John chapter 11. So we're going to be in John chapter 11 verses 17 to 27. And this is a remarkable story, but it is a very well-known story as well. It's probably one of the most sort of striking um, stories in John's gospel. This is the story of Lazarus's death. Jesus tarrying at Martha's request, and then ultimately his raising Lazarus from the dead. And in that story, he makes the claim that he is the resurrection and the life. And so this is a very encouraging text. It's not a super difficult text. And so I want us to consider it for a few moments together tonight and hopefully receive some encouragement from it um, that we can apply to our lives. Before we read this section. We're, we're going to be in seven, John 11, chap, chapter 11, verse 17. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, open our minds now. Open our eyes now. God, give us ears to hear. Grant knowledge and understanding where there is, by nature, darkness and confusion. So God, speak clearly to us about the person of Jesus Christ and his work for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. John chapter 11, verse 17 and following. I'll tell you what, let's back up and read verses 1 through about 6 by way of context, and then we'll jump down to verse 17. So beginning of verse 1, it says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of the village of. Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister. And her sister and Lazarus. Now let's jump down to verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. 
Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary anointed, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, this I am statement is actually a bit different than the four that we have seen that preceded it. Um, And it comes to us in a bit different way. And so I think it has to be read and taken, preached even, in a bit different light. So that if, if you remember the first three of those I am statements that we dealt with in John chapter 6, 8, and 10, first four of them, I guess, really, the, the good shepherd, there's two there. In John chapter 10, he claims, I am the good shepherd and I am the door of the sheep. But, but it's all in the greater context of his being the good shepherd. So we'll say the first three, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, and I am the good shepherd. That these come to us in a particular context of arguing or argumentation, and that with the Jewish leaders regarding the Jewish system. So that the Jewish leaders were sort of standing over against Jesus, who they hated because he was teaching that you did not have to keep the system, basically, in order to be saved, and to believe in him. That he had come to do what the system could not do. He was calling men and women out of Judaism. So the Jewish and religious leaders of the day They hated Jesus very much. Ultimately, they would crucify him on a cross because of his claim to be God incarnate. Um, They did not believe in him. And so in the context that these I am statements come, those come to us with this sort of combative nature. Jesus is in the midst of claiming to be deity and arguing against the religious leaders of the day. So, so So that what we see is, In John chapter 6, he claims to be the bread of life. What he's claiming is that he is the real manna from heaven. So that when the Israelites looked back on their wilderness wanderings and how God miraculously provided for them via manna to sustain them, he is saying to the Israelites who experienced that, I am the bread of life that satisfies completely. So not continually, we talked about that, there's a big difference because it's not that we get hungry and Jesus continues to satisfy our hunger. He says, I am the bread, the manna from heaven, that if you eat of me, you'll never hunger again, right? So, so that the manna that came in the wilderness was insufficient because they had to eat it again and again the next day. God had to continue to provide because their, their hunger continued to manifest itself. He's, he's saying that I have come as the fulfillment the, the, the thing to which that man appointed the fulfillment of all of God's promised blessings for God's chosen people, Israel. In John 7, though it's not an I am statement, in the same context, he claims to be the water from the rock. That's where he says in John 7, 
if anyone drinks of the water that I have or that I offer, he will never thirst again. The same idea in the wilderness wanderings. The old Israelites would have looked back on God's provision where he provided not only manna from heaven, but water from the rock to quench their thirst and sustain them. And he is claiming now to be the fulfillment of God's promised blessings for God's people, to be God incarnate. So that in John 8, if you remember, he says, I am the light of the world. Now, what's in view here? Clearly, if you, I think if you spend any time really studying that text, clearly what he's saying to the Israelites and particularly to the Jewish leaders is, I am the superior pillar of fire that led and provided for and protected the Israelites in the wilderness. Remember, if, if, if you weren't with us when we studied that, it's just after the Feast of Tabernacles, and he's standing in the court of the women, which is significant because it's in the court of the women, when he makes this statement, that they would, at the end of that feast week, light all of these torches. They would fill the court of women outside the temple that was exposed to the elements with all of these torches, these candles of some fashion. We don't know exactly what they were. So that you could stand outside of the city of Jerusalem, up on the hill at the temple, and you could see this magnificent light burning. And they lit those at the end of the feast that week in order to commemorate God's provision in the darkness and the coldness of the wilderness by the pillar of fire that he provided. And standing in the middle of those torches, Jesus declares to the Jews, I am the light of the world, right? I can provide light and warmth and protection in ways that the pillar never could. I am the fulfillment of God's promised blessings for God's chosen people that the pillar of fire and smoke by day pointed to. I am that God, that guy, that Messiah. So then in John 10, again in the context of arguing with the religious leaders, he is defending his shepherding. I am the good shepherd. Clearly, I think Ezekiel is in view here. We talked about that when we studied that passage where the shepherds of Israel are um, lambasted because of their wickedness and their failure. And Jesus says, in juxtaposing himself over against the wicked, the wicked shepherds of Israel in the Old Testament, he says, I am the good shepherd, right? I'm not serving myself. I'm not leading in a way that fills my own belly. I am sacrificing myself for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd, the door to the sheep. And all that I do is for the sheep that God has given to me. Now, this I am statement, though, as I said, I, I've reviewed all that because it's been a few weeks. This I am statement is different, and it is different primarily because it does not come in the particular context of defending his deity and his value or merit over against the Jewish system and the Jewish leaders. It comes to us in a remarkable story that shows Jesus' compassion for and teaching to his beloved friends and followers. This is Martha and Mary and Lazarus, those, as it tells us at the beginning of John 11, that Jesus loved. Remember when the sisters come to him, they say, Lord, he whom you love is ill. These are intimate, close companions and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not, he's not entering into this sort of defense of his person and work 
in this statement, in this context, the way that he has in all of those that we've studied previously. And so I think it bears dealing with in a bit different way. Now, he's still going to correct their thinking, but he's going to be much more gentle. He's going to be much more pastoral and shepherding with these, uh, these followers, these beloved friends. He's still going to lead them into a deeper understanding of himself as he was doing with the religious leaders and all the Jews. But as I said, these are those of faith. These are not those that are seeking his life. These are not those that are seeking to tear down his ministry. And um, it's a beautiful picture to see, even just by way of the structure, the, 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 the compassion and the care and the, um, the tenderness that Jesus has in dealing with his, his, his friends, his, his family, his followers. And so I want us to consider then tonight, just by way of the story here, particularly in 17 and following, but, but four things. I want us to see Martha's faith, Martha's confusion. Then I want us to think G- about Jesus's goal or his agenda, if you will, and then Jesus is teaching what, what it is that he actually says to her in this statement, I am the resurrection and the life, and why it is to be an encouragement to her. Now, much like Martha, every single one of you in this room have been through a painful death. Friends, death is a necessary part of life, and death is promised to us all. Death is not by chance. God is the creator, sustainer, and ender of life. It is appointed unto man once to die. The day of Lazarus's death in this circumstance was appointed by God from the foundation of the world. Friends, there's great hope in that. There's great comfort in that and knowing that these things do not happen by chance or happenstance or fate. Um, nonetheless, because it is a necessary part of life, we live in a fallen world. We, we have ailments and frailties and physical disabilities that remind us of that fallenness all of the time. They remind us that death is coming to us all, that we are all decaying, and that all of this is the result of sin. For God declared in the beginning that sin brings forth death because it's a necessary part of life, all of human life, and particularly the Christian life. Friends, it is one of the most difficult parts of life um, where children are taken from their families at extremely young ages as some of you can attest. And, and, and we walk through those valleys of death's shadow and we wonder, God, what are you doing? Maybe we wonder, God, where are you? And one of the difficulties in death is that the providences and purposes of God are not always unfolded for his people to know. One thing you will never hear me, and Chase and I have talked about it, so I can tell you, you'll never hear him say it either. At a funeral, in order to comfort a family, is one day we'll understand why all of these things happened. Says who? We will never be all knowing. We will understand it better by and by. We see dimly now and it will be clearer one day. But God will always be the creator. We will always be the creature. We will not ever always fully and completely understand everything that he's ever done. If God chooses to unveil to us and expose to us his purposes and plans and some of those very tragic difficulties, wonderful. But I'm not going to speak for God. He's not said that he will. Perhaps we find ourselves, you know, the death of a, a beloved mentor, a, a father, a mother, a grandfather. Um, someone who meant so much to us in this life and all of a sudden they're gone. Perhaps as with Mary and Martha, it's a, 
you know, a brother, a sibling, someone that cared for them and helped to, you know, meet their needs, someone they depended upon in a very real way. What a difficulty this would have been. Friends, people ask me as a pastor all the time in those kind of valleys, underneath that cloudy shadow, to explain to them why. I can't. Maybe sometimes I have some, you know, nugget of wisdom that, that, that God has un- unveiled or revealed in, 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 in our lives. But the reality, friends, is most of the time that's simply not the case. We don't know what God is doing. But praise God for this text. Because this text gives us an answer. Maybe not humanly. I can't tell you how it's going to benefit your life and your family and this circumstance is ultimately... I I, I maybe can't put all of those pieces together, but praise God for John chapter 11 because it at least gives us something. It gives us hope and encouragement and it reveals to us something, even if not completely, of the plan and purposes of God even in the difficult shadow of death. Look at Martha's faith here. I love that in the midst of her, you know, Martha from some people gets a bad rap here. Not me. Uh, her faith was perhaps infantile. I mean, this is an infant church. Christ has come and she has only recently begun to believe in him. Maybe it was misguided or misinformed, but friends, look, look at her faith. I mean, look, look at what she says. Lazarus has died. She's confused as to why Jesus tarried and didn't come. So when Martha heard, verse 20, that Jesus was coming, she goes out to meet him. First of all, she's excited. She doesn't even wait on him to get in the house. Out she goes. She runs out to meet him because she has questions. We all have questions. Maybe God will allow us to ask those questions one day. Maybe he'll give an answer. I don't know. Jesus was there that day and he met Martha. She went out to meet him. She's got questions. But, but look at the way she phrases it. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Maybe. But what's her point? I don't think she means to be so presumptuous to assume that she knows everything that God will do. I think she's asserting the truths about God's power and what he can do. And friends, she knew that absolutely to be true. Look at how she follows it up. But even now that he is dead, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. How did she know? Because she had seen Jesus do it. We know from the testimony of scripture and from history that she would have experienced and probably personally seen blind men from birth being healed instantaneously. The lame, the sick, the fallen, all restored in a moment. She knew that Jesus had the power over death that she needed to bring her brother back to life. And so for all of her misguided or misinformation here, I think we should in some way look and give her a little bit of credit. I mean, she, she came to Jesus because she knew that was the only place to go. Now, friends, let me, let me make one application here before we move on because I, I do want us to see her confusion. I think she's confused a bit. But how often in the difficulty of say, death shadow particularly, and those kind of tragedies and that kind of loss. How often is the first and the only place that we go to Jesus? 
and it should be, because as Martha knew well, the only person that is the power of life and death is God Almighty. But friends, often when we do come, we come much like Martha. Martha had lots of requests for Jesus. God, I need you to do this. I don't understand why you didn't come. If you had come, you would have done this because I asked you to. Now that you're here, I know you can still heal him or bring him back to life, revive him, whatever the case was, if he's sleeping or whatever is going on here. She has lots of requests for Jesus. She is very interested in Jesus because of what Jesus can do for her. Friends, let us be very careful. Let us be very careful that we do not fall into this same confusion. So that leads us to number two, Martha's confusion. I do think in some way we can appreciate her faith and her faithfulness. She knew where the power laid, lied. I don't even know what the right word would be. She knew where it was stored. She knew who had it. Okay? And so she goes there, but again, she seems to be a bit confused. She knows that he can heal and restore, but it seems clear in this text that she has begun to think that the reason Jesus is here is to solve all of these temporal problems. And we know, both from the testimony of Scripture and history, that this was a common misconception of the Jewish people. The reason, one of the reasons, that they could not buy Jesus as a Messiah, they couldn't accept him, why? Is because they were looking for a conquering king that would restore all of their fortunes, that would deliver them from all of their enemies, like the Philistines and the Hittites and the Amorites, that would cure all of their diseases, heal all of their sicknesses, fix all of their political turmoil, economic struggles and difficulties, they were looking for a temporal two-day Messiah. And it's obvious that this mentality is lingering and creating confusion in Martha's mind because in some way, she thinks that Jesus is here to just fix all these problems and to heal all these ailments. Why? Because she's confident that if Jesus had been here, he would have stopped Lazarus from dying. I don't know if he would have or not. Actually, based on what he says at the beginning of John 11, I would say probably not. But she's also confident that if he'll just come, he's going to and can and will revive him from the grave. Do you see, I think the problem is that Martha perhaps had been given to the thinking that God would be most glorified when his physical people were given physical rest. Now listen very carefully. That is a danger that we all fall prey to, right? That if God would just miraculously heal this child, that God would be glorified, and, I don't, and he would be. But we get confused in the same way that Martha was into thinking that God is most glorified by the physical resolution of our temporal struggles and difficulties. When, friends, according to Scripture, that is Absolutely not the case, as Jesus is going to make clear here to her. Jesus is operating on an agenda. And his agenda did not include the physical restoration of all of his physical people. I want you to think about this. Think about the crowds that gathered when Jesus did things like healing lepers. For every leper or blind or withered hand in a crowd of hundreds that he called forth, how many people went home 
with headaches and broken toes and sores. I mean, just the physical things. How many people went home to broken marriages, wayward children, sick grandparents in the crowds that were standing there? The idea that Jesus took every opportunity to heal every physical ailment is intellectually untrue and historically dishonest. All you have to do is read the pages of Scripture. Why? Why would Jesus not do all that he could do? Why would Jesus not answer Martha's request to heal Lazarus? Why would he not heal every ailment of every person that came to him seeking such healing? We know that he didn't. It's because Jesus has a goal. He has an agenda. To be more specific, he says, I have come to do the will of the one who sent me. And the problem is that the will of God and the agenda of Jesus Christ, the sent one, is not always what we would have done. God's agenda and ours often diverge. I can't tell you how many times in my own life there's a huge bifurcation in between what I think should happen, my will, agenda, what I think is best, and obviously, because God's not doing it that way, what God thinks should happen. Happens all the time. It's an expression and a manifestation in my life, and I know that you can identify in yours, that we do not always, because we are fallen creatures, plagued by sin in a fallen world, we do not always think Biblically, righteously, perfectly, we are not God and his agenda is not always ours. Now, that becomes very evident if you go back to the beginning that we read. Let's revisit the first few verses here in John chapter 11. It says, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they're there, brothers and sisters, and Lazarus is ill. So the sisters come in verse 3 and say, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he says this, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so that when he heard that Lazarus was ill... He stayed two more days longer in the place where he was. You got to hear that. Number one, his response to Martha is this illness is not to prove death's power, but it is for God's glory. And he is so committed to that truth that when he hears that he's ill, in order to bring about God's glory through the illness and suffering that led to Lazarus' death, he chose, by sovereign and divine design, willfully to stay where he was for two more days to give him time to die. I don't mean to be crude. That's what happened. A willful decision by God Almighty incarnated in the person of Jesus Christ to stay instead of to go and to heal. And the reason that he offers is because this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. Now, your, your question is, how in the world 
does sickness and death, in Lazarus's case, glorify God? Well, I know the rest of the story. God was glorified in the way that the thing unfolds. Jesus would have probably known that. God would have orchestrated it to be that way. Can you only imagine what this would have taught Mary and Martha about their dependence upon God, about the intention and ministry of Jesus himself in his power, right? This provided the occasion for Lazarus to be raised from the grave in physical bodily form, but it goes way beyond that, friends. It goes way beyond that. I can't tell you everything that God was doing in the death of Lazarus and all the ways in which that death led to the glory of God. But what I can tell you is this. As he says and makes clear there, that anyone who dies yet shall live if they are found in Christ. And because Lazarus was a beloved follower of Jesus... a sinner would have stepped into eternity covered with the righteous blood of Jesus and had bestowed upon him an eternal life together in perfect union with God. Friends, that's a, that is an unspeakable, unfathomable miracle that nothing temporal, nothing physical, nothing experiential in this life in creation can ever begin even to come close to compare in terms of the magnitude of the glory of God that it brings. When a sinner is reconciled through Christ with God and delivered unto his bosom in the rest of heaven, nothing can bring about God's glory more. And we must hear that truth tonight, that in part, while we don't know everything, that one of the ways that God is most glorified is when the death that is appointed to come upon us all comes, but it cannot be victorious, and it does not have the final say. When God expresses by way of the power of his spirit through the sacrifice and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection unto life of that believer and bestowing upon him life eternal in heaven with God, nothing can glorify God in the way that that can. Whereas that changes the way we look at everything. It changes the way we look at death. It changes the way we look at suffering. It changes the way we look at struggling and physical ailments and temporary ailments. And what it helps us to see is that Jesus' mission is not to fix your ingrown toenails. It is to do anything that will contribute to the glory of God and magnify and exalt him among the nations. That's why Jesus is here. That's why he was here with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. That's why he is broken into creation and into your very heart and life. That's why he speaks to us by his spirit tonight. Jesus, unlike what the prosperity gospel people would tell you, is not always going to fix all your problems. In fact, I can tell you certainly that he will not because he promises that as they crucified our master and hated him for his faith and his claims to be God, so too will they crucify, metaphorically speaking, and oppress those who follow him. A servant is not better than the master. The difficulties of God's providence in this life are sure. Friends, the promise of the gospel is not that we will have calm seas upon which to sail. It is that in Christ we will always be 
provided a safe harbor and shelter when we arrive. That's our hope. And friends, we have to be very careful that we understand Jesus' goal so that our faith is not confused and misguided like Martha's was. When was the last time, just to, just to boil us all down for you and to put it all together, here's what I'm saying. When was the last time amidst great struggle, tragedy, sadness, and suffering in your life that you came to Jesus and your prayer was, Jesus, do whatever you need to do in my life and in this situation to bring about your glory. And that's way different than all of the things that we ask. So much of the time, we want Jesus because of what Jesus can do for us, rather than wanting Jesus for Jesus. That's actually his teaching. So what is it that he says? Jesus says to her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, Martha, what Lazarus needs is not what I can do for him. He needs me. Martha, what you need is not the alleviation of all of this temporal sadness. I am the gift. I am the life. I am sufficient. He is imploring Martha to long for Jesus simply for himself, not because he's a genie in a bottle, not because he can just be brought out and do everything we ask him to do. In fact, the scripture teaches us that we have not because we ask not, and we ask and have because we ask wrongly. What is it? What is asking wrongly? It's asking without any regard for the purpose and plans of God Almighty. Friends, in the midst of our suffering and pain, let us understand that because of the sovereignty of God, He is accomplishing His purposes through them. He is doing something. He bottles every tear we shed and counts them as precious. Every saint that dies and passes into glory, that moment, it is precious in the sight of our Savior. Our suffering is not in vain. Let us pray in the midst of those things that God would do whatever it is that he has promised to do and ordained to do through them and that we would bear it with patience and meekness. Notice his words are not only for Lazarus. That's one thing that I love. It's not just for Lazarus. There'd be very little hope if the only hope here was for the one who was dead. Because he's talking to one who is alive and who is struggling mightily in the midst of the situation. What does he say? Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's for Lazarus. Okay? Our hope in this life is that death will not have the final say. And Jesus came and died only to be risen from the dead as the expression and manifestation before we ever die, right? To prove to us and show to us that there is hope for life after death, that God has the power over the grave. It could not hold him. He has been raised unto life as the first fruits of what we hope to come in the harvest one day. You see that? That is our hope in death, 
that death is not victorious. But, but look, that's for Lazarus. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's for Martha. He's not talking about a physical death. It's, I mean, listen, you're either going to die or you're going to be around when Jesus returns to get us. Those are the two options. But he's encouraging Martha. He's encouraging the living not to be consumed by the power and the pain of death. We don't have to fear death. I don't have to walk around, you know, chained and shackled by the anxieties of death and and what that looks like. I, I don't have to do that. Because he says, anyone who believes in me that is alive shall never die. Death becomes merely a door. If the worst the devil can do to me is to kill me, he's done me a favor. He has delivered me from this bondage, this body. He has delivered me unto Christ my Lord and into his bosom and rest forever. What a glorious teaching that is. I am the resurrection and the life. He can say that because he was raised and because he now enjoys that life and expresses that life eternal. And he can then encourage us thereby that whoever believes in me, if we die, we will live. And if we live, we will never die. Friends, life is a sad reality. I've done funerals this year for for some of you and your families. Um, I've cried with some of you and uh, mourned with you the loss of many things, not just physical death. Friends, death is sad and often tragic and difficult. And friends, I cannot tell you all of what God is doing in every one of those situations fully, but I can tell you absolutely that in every one of those situations, whatever he is doing, he is so doing in order to glorify himself. Friends, let us see death like that and let us find hope and life and faith in Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord, who was brought from the grave in bodily form and who now dwells in heaven eternally, as we talked about this morning, before God interceding for us on our behalf, standing between the wrath of God against our sin and us. And so let us look to Jesus and let us hear the words that he spoke to Martha and let us never fear death or its power. Let's pray. God, thank you for the word that you have delivered unto us tonight. Thank you for the testimony of Martha her sister Mary of Lazarus and what you did in and through that situation. God, thank you that we do not have to fear death. God, thank you that you brought forth Jesus Christ from the grave, that death could not hold him, could not have victory over him, that he is the resurrection and he is the life. And God, I pray that we would not come to Christ because of what Christ can do for us, but we would come to Christ because he is life and he is the resurrection. He is the gift. We would come to Jesus because we might in him have Jesus. And through Jesus, we might be reconciled with you. God, if there are 
hurts and pains and scars in this place tonight and sadness on account of death, if there's confusion about your purposes and plans because of death in people's hearts and minds tonight, I pray that you would ease those pains, that you would resolve those confusions, maybe not completely, but that in the midst of such confusion and pain, we would take great comfort in knowing that this is not an illness that leads to death. It is an illness and a suffering and a struggle that is unto the glory of God. Help us to be encouraged tonight that whether it's in life or death, we do not suffer in vain, but that you are building up for us an eternal weight of glory through these things. God, as we suffer with Christ in this life, as we are buried with him in this life, may we be raised with him unto life eternal. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.